0: Thanks for listening to the Trial Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Glenn Baxter. Glenn is a longtime bilingual journalist and broadcasting personality with a deep love for fashion, arts, design, and photography. He's perhaps best known for his television work on much music, city TV, fashion television, and as the host of CTV's In Fashion, which aired across Canada and 30 other countries for over a decade. Today, Glenn is the director of brand and lifestyle at Freed Developments, where he gets to blend art with commerce. Welcome, Glenn, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me.
1: Where are you and how are you? (laughs) Thanks for having me, Andrew. Uh, Yeah, I'm at home on my lunch break from work uh, in downtown Toronto, and I'm doing great. Well, living downtown in the
0: city of Toronto in the summer, is there anything better?
1: (laughs) It's a pretty nice day today. Lots of sunshine and lots going on.
0: And having said the enjoyment of what must be like to live downtown in the summer, do you like to get out of town during the summer?
1: I do get to go out of town quite a bit, especially in the summer with my new role at uh, Freed Developments. Freed is a developer in the city, but uh, uh, over a year and a half ago, um, he acquired Deerhurst Resort near Huntsville, Horseshoe Resort in Barrie, and he already owned and operated the Muskoka Bay Resort in Gravenhurst and he bought some land the last land to be developed at Blue Mountain. So I'm I'm going up there. I was just out there last week for Our Lady Peace at Horseshoe. Uh the week before that for uh, Crankworks Mountain Biking Festival at Horseshoe and 3 weeks ago I was at the Tall Pines Festival at Gradehurst, which is a 2 minute drive from our resort out there. So uh yeah, I I, I yeah, and even though I don't have a car, I've never owned a car in my life. I'm I'm hitting the highway regularly and and getting out there, so uh, I do enjoy the city, but also uh, little nature doesn't hurt.
0: Yeah, I think you hit a home run, Glenn. I'm already. I don't <laughs> usually get jealous this early, but you've got the best of both worlds. That's amazing. yeah, yeah. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. Let's go all the way back. Get the Glenn Baxter story. You are not a native Torontonian. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing.
1: Uh, oh, okay. Uh, so I was born in uh, Montreal. I grew up uh, in Dollar des on the West Island. I went to French elementary school. I went to four different high schools. Uh, four of them were uh, in French. And then my last year, I went to English high school so I could play on the basketball team. I Then I, I went over to CJP at John Abbott, a beautiful campus, uh, which was part of the uh, McGill campus uh, in St. Anne de Bellevue, where I played a couple of years on the basketball team there. Uh, Went to Concordia University, studied English literature for one year, read the best books ever written, talked about them, uh, did uh, exams on them. But then I thought, well, how am I going to earn a living? Uh, This is great, but uh, what am I going to do next? So then I decided to apply at Ryerson and Carleton University in journalism, which at the time uh, were the two best journalism schools in Canada. I got turned down by Carleton, as I should have, and uh, for some reason um, I got accepted at Ryerson. I came down to Toronto. I hadn't really been in to Toronto maybe once or twice before that. And I had a general knowledge uh, test, uh, interviews, a whole process. And I think because uh, I came from Montreal, from Quebec, and I spoke French, I kind of filled a quota. I think they wanted to really embrace uh, uh, people from across the country. So I got in. And I didn't get in because I had great grades or... Uh, because I had a lot of stories published in in newspapers or what have you, I think I got in mostly because uh, I was keen and I was a bilingual uh, student. So that's what brought me brought me to Toronto. And then I thought I'd get a degree in journalism and go back to Montreal, but I kept getting uh, breaks, some good some good opportunities because of my bilingualism. Well, you
0: started getting the breaks while you were still in school. As you note, at Ryerson, you majored in print, but you actually began your career still a student at YTV and as the morning traffic reporter
1: at French CBC Radio. And it started way before that, Andrew. So when I was a student at Ryerson studying print, uh, I got a job as the morning traffic reporter on French CBC Radio. I've never owned a car in my life. So uh, so I was like sitting next to Jim Kern, who retired a few years ago. He was doing traffic uh, on morning uh, radio for the CBC in the morning and in in the afternoon. And you know I'm showing up in sweatpants. I've been studying all night for exams, and and I'm kind of like piggybacking on on his work because he had all the scanners, and he's teaching me the ropes. And uh, c'est par choc contre par choc, so le Gardner en direction west à l'approche de Jameson. So we're listening to the TTC, the you know the 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 some of the planes that were up in the sky, and we're gathering all the information. And every 10, 15 minutes, I'm on the air and I'm delivering traffic. And then I graduate from Ryerson. I take a year off. I travel uh, around the Mediterranean, started in London, ended in in Cairo, Egypt. And then when I came back, I went to say hello to my friends in the newsroom uh, at the French CBC, and they were launching a new arts and entertainment television show. And they had the host already hired. They had one of the reporters hired. The reporter was going to cover the high arts, you know, the the ballet, uh, the opera uh, the Toronto symphony. And they were looking for a younger reporter to do more like street stories. I had long hair. I just came back from backpacking for a year. They gave me a camera and they said, go shoot something. If we like it, you're hired." And I shot something that not only got me the job, but it was like re-edited and it aired on the national, uh, Le the national, uh, news show on, on the French CBC television. So that was the first story I ever did in television. And it went, you know, coast to coast, national on CBC, a French CBC. Uh, so I ended up working for the French CBC sh- television uh, as a reporter on an arts and entertainment weekly television show. That led to French TVO co-hosting a youth magazine show called the uh, Imagine, which later took me to YTV, where I produced on um, a show called Street Noise. Excellent urban myth is, Glenn, that
0: 1991, you got a call from Moses Neimer for a job at Much Music. How did this come about? What was
1: the call like? I'm wondering how you how you found that out, but that's true. I came home one day and there was a message on on my voicemail, first in French, uh, of someone claiming to be Moses Neimer. And I thought, okay, someone's playing a joke. But when he switched to English, it was unmistakable. Oh my God, Moses Neimer is calling me. And he brought me into, uh, to I guess, Interview for a job at Much Music uh, on a show called Facts, and uh, so so I, I, I got that that gig, and and it was like winning the lottery. It was terrifying at the time because I was quite shy, and when I worked as a reporter for French CBC Television, uh, the school of thought was if you can tell a story without being in it, that's that's the way to go. Whereas now I'm working for City TV and Much Music, which was really personality TV, and you had to be in there and you were, you know, part of the story. And there was this whole living movie process thing that was part of uh, of the TV station. So I thought, well, I'm either going to learn how to do it, learn to love it, or I'm going to give it a shot and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, kind <laughs> of give up and, and and say it's not for me, but... It was such a great opportunity that I really I really thought I had to, you know do do my best and and things kind of worked out. Well, things sure did work out. Four years with much music. in the early 90s, Glenn, these were the go, go, go days. Yeah, all, all of the 90s I, I spent uh, in uh, well, I spent 20 straight years at 299 Queen West. So the first 10 years were as an arts and entertainment cultural reporter for both uh, city TV and much music. At the beginning, at the beginning it was strictly much music for facts and working on specials and and stuff but then uh they would bring me to the newsroom and had me anchor the entertainment pack for for City Pulse on the weekends and for City Pulse at night with Mark Daly uh, the late Mark Daly um so so yeah so so the my my 90s were were spent uh, in much music uh in the environment and down the hall at City TV in the newsroom and uh my god what a like I was listening to some of your podcasts before coming on today uh like Rick the Temp and Steve Gersner at the Sock I mean when I, I mentioned I was at uh, Our Lady Peace at uh, Horseshoe last weekend, I, I did a little dive before I headed over there and I stumbled on a YouTube video of intimate and interactive with Our Lady Peace hosted by Rick Campanelli. And my God, it, I had goosebumps. It was so energetic and so much fun and, and, and like the fans kind of being part of the broadcast. And, and that was our office. I remember the first time I ever walked into much music, I was still working at the French CBC and Laurie Brown had just left. And I sent my demo tape. I think that's how Moses got my name and how he he stumbled onto me. I was working at the French CBC and Laurie Brand was a great great uh, rock journalist was leaving, and somebody said, "Hey, you should uh, you should go and apply." And I wasn't ready for to you know to fill in her shoes, and she was so good. But I thought, you know, it, it can't hurt. I'll just you know put a demo tape together and and see where it takes me. So a year later is when they brought me in, and I think it was based on on, on that uh, that demo tape. And when I first walked into Much Music. It was like an amphitheater. It was like a like a like a gladiator pit. All these on air personalities, you know, s- sitting on on multi levels and, and and desks next to each other, and they're all basically doing the same thing, right? It was like kind of com- you, you kind of felt it was competitive, but not competitive with a with another station. It was competitive within coworkers because they were all they were all on television, and they all had you know some had better shows or more airtime or more prestigious gigs and interviews, but they were all there, and it was like oh. This is a little intimidating. I don't know if I'm ready for this. This is crazy. You're in the big league. I'm, ju- I'm just I'm just a French dude who who uh, <laughs> you know graduated from from journalism school. Well, Glenn, you obviously have tons of memories
0: and memorable interactions, but in particular, the Much Music Video Awards would have been big, and I understand you bonded with David Bowie over his interest in photography.
1: The Much Music Video Awards were. <laughs> One of the greatest days of the year for anyone working in there, right? I mean, it was unbelievable. And it's hard to describe to people who may not be familiar with that event. It happened in the parking lot next to the building. It happened inside the building. They would close off Queen Street. They would close off part of John Street. And there were thousands of fans out there and bands were- And, uh, the David Bowie thing was funny because the only recollection I had of David Bowie was going to grab some lunch, leaving the building, walking on Queen street in broad daylight. And he was rehearsing uh, during the day for the, for the, for the show that night. And he's like, you know, 10 feet away from the sidewalk. And I'm, I locked eyes with him. We kind of smiled at each other and that was it. But then a photographer sent me pictures. I wake up one morning on the weekend and I look at my phone and photographer had sent me pictures of David Bowie and I on the red carpet and i had completely forgotten about that you know we we did so many interviews and the you know it was kind of those days are are kind of a blur to me and and i went oh apparently i interviewed david bowie and i had completely and, and according to the pictures it looked like he enjoyed it cuz he's smiling and he has a cigarette in his hand and he had a camcorder in one hand and i mean red carpets i don't i don't care what anybody tells you they're the worst things ever for an entertainment reporter they are stressful they are they're really difficult especially now when there's so there's so much uh media out there right that at much music at least uh, being a city TV uh, reporter and working for the the company I was on the red carpet as opposed to barricaded on the other side hoping to get David Bowie to stop to answer my questions with a hundred other journalists right but I had you know prime real estate with him, but uh, and there were so many, right? So many bands and so many artists that uh, would 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 uh, attend and perform and present during that show. Well, another big, David Bowie was just one of them. Well, another big red
0: carpet memory would have been the Jewel Awards red carpet. I saw a photo of you interviewing the DJ Dead Mouse, but his <laughs> costume had his mouse helmet, was so oversized. I don't even know how you could talk to the guy.
1: Yeah, no, well, he, yeah, uh, that was his thing. That's what he. Uh, that's part of his shtick. Uh, he kept his uh, his his you know, um, mouse head on. Uh, and yeah, I guess we did an interview. I remember also, uh, doing an interview that same day, I think with, uh, with Drake when he was just kicking off. And the reason Drake ended up stopping and talking to me was because I was beside Tyrone T-Rex who had a relationship with him. But yeah, that, that was another sort of red carpet moment. Now you talk about it as one and the same, I
0: guess they're in the same family, but you did kind of transition more over to city TV, cover arts and entertainment in the mid to late nineties for six years. I mean, why that transition? Uh, or was it just kind of a natural progression for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was something that uh, they kind of decided uh, for me, uh, sort of luring me and bringing me down the hall and work at city TV uh, as a producer, a writer, and as a host uh, reporter. And that was such a great gig. I mean, we, got to cover all aspects of the arts in the city of Toronto, which doesn't really happen in television anymore. I mean, we would do small theater, uh, you know, fine artists and, and, and contemporary modern dance and, you know, not things that are hugely popular or very mainstream or commercial, but we gave a platform to so many artists in the city um, that normally wouldn't, like today would never get that kind of exposure on television as well as you know the, the bigger celebrities and, and the larger acts that uh, are from Canada and around the world uh, but that was so rewarding and then you know putting together your your entertainment pack and your reporting and then we'd always have to figure out where we're going to present it because they never wanted me to do it in the studio they always wanted to do it with a live eye right go live from somewhere and i remember the last few years when i was working there the director uh, the the producer in the newsroom Wanted the entertainment live, or wanted the live eye to go with entertainment. Even if there wasn't anything worthwhile, we still had to come up with something. And I'll never forget the last one I ever, ever did was at the Elmo back in the day, like on a Tuesday or Wednesday. And it was just a bunch of indie bands playing, but there was nothing much going on in the city. So we decided to go live from there. And I go upstairs and there's maybe like 12 people. It's, it's quite, it, you know, it's quiet. And then some guy comes up to me and he goes, Oh, are you here for Dave Foley? Like, what? Dave Foley's here, you know, from News Radio, Kids in the Hall. And I'm thinking, okay, now all of a sudden, uh, my bland uh, Tuesday, Wednesday night live eye is now a, a TIFF party. And uh, so I go over to uh, a table and Dave Foley's there and I introduce myself and ask him, is it okay if I ask you a couple of questions live on the air for the news? And he goes, only if my friend Alex Lifeson can join us from Rush. They're sitting together and go, oh, yes, I just hit the jackpot. I'm all excited. Anyway, so we go live on the air and I, they made some kind of Joke. I mean, you know, Dave Foley's a comedian, and the uh, producer in the newsroom did not like the joke, and that was the last what we ever did. No more, no more live eyes for you. And I thought it was great. I always pictured someone at home in the living room watching the news, going like, "Oh, what's Baxter up to tonight? Where, Where's he gonna? Th- what's gonna happen tonight?" You know, because we were going to like parties, galas, concerts. What you know, like Run DMC at the Opera House, going live and just like so many so many great events and opportunities in the city as an entertainment reported back in those days all about being in the right place
0: at the right <laughs> time true true. Glenn, you started the new millennium hosting CTVs in fashion. Now, this was a Bell property, so you were still in the family, so to speak.
1: 100%. Yeah, I was, uh, after 10 years of doing live television in the newsroom where, you know, it's quite stressful. It's always a race against time. You're stuck on the gardener and you have to be live on the air at a certain time. And there's no, like, I'll be there, you know, five minutes late. That does not exist, right, And in in live news. So I was looking for a change um, and the CRTC had just approved license for a digital channel called fashion television channel and fashion television at the time for me was the one product the one show that I really really admired and respected I, I have to say I wasn't an avid viewer because most of what was covered was women's wear and but what I did appreciate was the quality of the show the high level production the fact that it was seen in 100 countries around the world it was an international brand with a great great team behind it Ah, uh, Jeannie Becker, of course, the host. It was created by the supervising producer Jay Levine, who was brilliant. So when this channel was approved by the CRTC, I went into Moses's office and I said, "I'd love to make the leap from the newsroom to to work on this new channel and and help get it off the ground with with the team." And he said, "Sure, let's do it." And then I ended up, uh, you know, getting my own show for for a decade called In Fashion, uh, where we covered fashion here in Canada and in Toronto and around the world. And it was uh, it wasn't it wasn't a job. It was a lifestyle. It was like, you know, like I, I remember like, you know, years later, people were are you still doing that fashion show. And I remember thinking, uh, yeah, I'll do that show until someone tells me I can't do it anymore because find me a better gig. This is like a dream job. This is unbelievable. And I would still be doing it today
0: if I could. Well, if I may ask, you did, as you know, do in fashion for over a decade. How and why does it eventually come to an end?
1: Uh, I think it's just the industry, right? I mean, uh, it's a, it's kind of a shrinking industry. Every time we're reading headlines, it's always about layoffs and cuts. Um, so I don't think it was so much about uh, the show itself. I think it was just about the new owners and and their vision for the future and, and uh, where media was heading. Glenn, you have interviewed
0: some of the biggest names in the fashion and entertainment industries. Now, meeting celebrities is risky. As the saying goes, don't meet your heroes. They can exceed your expectations or they can be so horrible. You wish you'd never met them before. <laughs> so let's let's start with the positive. Who blew your
1: expectations away when you met them in person? Uh, David Bowie would certainly be up there. I, I don't know. Wow, that's a tough question. And I've been asked that question many times over the years and there, there's just so much Got you know like I remember in the early 90s, I would fly to New York and LA to do the the film junkets and, uh, and you know talk to some of the biggest stars in Hollywood. You know, that was like winning a contest. You know, we'll fly a business class to LA where you'll stay at the five-star, you know, Four Seasons in Westwood. You'll interview the, you know, it was like, it was quite an amazing thing. And then at Music, some of the top bands and and then fashion, you know, some of the top designers and celebrities sitting in the front row. But, you know, Jay-Z, I I remember, I remember interviewing Jay-Z when he was promoting two new artists that he was supporting. One of them was Rihanna. I thought the other artist was going to be big. Uh, and, and I can't even remember her name, but, um, you know, they, uh, and, and it, the, the funny thing too, I look back on things that like I don't have any content. Like I nowadays, when people interview, uh, celebrities, what, right. They, they take a selfie. It's like part of, part of the, the, you know, part, part of the process back then when I was on television and interviewing all of these, uh, stars, uh, you not even ask for an autograph that was like crossing the line that was unprofessional, but Jay-Z, I got his autograph. <laughs> well, that's the right uh, thing I do. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I'm glad if you thought that question was tough. I don't mm-hmm. know what you're gonna think of this one. The other side of the coin. who was a <laughs> real disappointment to meet in person. Yeah. He went, "I wish I hadn't met them."
1: There was a cameraman that I worked with who, uh, you know, when he was asked uh, about certain celebrities, he'd always say, say the same thing. Like, especially with with actors, he goes, "Well, they're they're an actor. That day they were acting nice. Another day they could be acting not so nice." The one thing that I always like understood was. Some of these celebrities, you look at their schedule and you're, you're waking up in the morning and you see them, you hear them on morning radio and then they have a concert that night. Like their days are 18 hours and then they're on a plane and they're going to, an, like, I'd be in a bad mood too. Right. And I've also like met celebrities where I've interviewed them one year and then they're the nicest people ever. And then two years later, they're a little grumpy. But it's like, you know, um, <laughs> I've had some, I, there's a couple of ones that, that come to mind Barney. The purple dinosaur. dinosaur. Oh my God, that was a nightmare. It was like there's one guy in the costume and then there's one guy who does the voice. Who am I interviewing? There's like, you know, three publicists from Toronto. There's six publicists from the US and you have to please everybody. And it's like, what's going and in the end they they end up doing what you had proposed like hours later or hours earlier. There's an illusionist who I won't mention. I remember doing the news on the weekend, so we had to do the six o'clock news and the ten o'clock news. And on the weekends, you're on your own. You're producing, you're writing, you're reporting, and then you're delivering it live from somewhere. So it's like nonstop. And we're driving up to North York and uh, the the illusionist, who I won't mention, had two shows. And our interview was in between shows. And I was with a very accomplished cameraman. He did this beautiful lighting. His assistant came in a couple of times and asking to change the light, change the light. like. Yeah, and you could tell like her boss, it must be very difficult because she's stressed right out. And the illusionist came in and he didn't, he didn't like the lighting, but anyways, long story short, it was all, it all had to do with his hairline. And, uh, he was, very, he, uh, was very particular about how he looked on television. And I was like, my cameraman was in a bad mood. Like it, it was real, and it was, it was an awful experience from beginning to end. And I remember thinking if I could, I would just walk away. I would have liked that just walked away and said, sorry, this isn't working out. You know, I apologize and just let, but I needed it for, I needed the content for the news. So I had the, but it was the shortest interview. I asked two questions, got what I needed that said, thank you. when we left. Yeah. I don't know. But for the most part, I mean, when you're doing entertainment, most of the people you're talking to aren't in a great mood and they're there to promote. So they're, they're happy to see you and they're on and they understand that's part of their, their job. And whether it's a new album or a new movie or they're, they're actually, they're, 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 it's, it's quite pleasant. Well, everything
0: goes around, comes around. We are new friends, Glenn. And in solidarity <laughs> with you, officially from this moment on, banned from this podcast are both Barney and David, <laughs> Co- David Copperfield. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, when you talk fashion on television, you are either talking Glenn Baxter or the
1: aforementioned Jeannie Becker. How did you enjoy working with Jeannie? Uh, do you still keep in touch? Yeah, I mean, uh, I love Jeannie. And I learned so much from her. I, I don't know if people understand that, but Jeannie is huge in fashion, not just in Canada but around the world. I remember the first time I realized this was, I think it was during TIFF, and Holt Renfrew on Bloor Street was hosting an event, and uh, Roberto Cavalli was there. I don't know if your listeners know who Roberto Cavalli is, but uh, he's he's you know uh, one of the biggest uh, fashion designers based in Milan. Um, I've interviewed a couple. I've interviewed him a couple of times when I covered uh, Milan's menswear fashion week. But I remember we were at Holt Renfrew and he walked through the crowd and sought Jeannie out and gave her a big hug. And I went, oh, okay. So Roberto Covali is is like, you know, looking for Jeannie. And so, yeah, the one thing I tried to do with, with, with my show, because Jeannie's show was, you know, it was probably the, the best show on fashion in the world. I remember covering Bland Fashion Week for the first time in 2005, and I had been watching all kinds of uh, uh, TV in my hotel room and so on and i remember thinking the two best shows on fashion in the world are produced out of all places in toronto a couple of blocks away from each other so you had cbc doing a fashion file with tim blanks and late, later adrian and you had fashion television with Jeannie. and for some reason you know you know canada is not exactly a fashion destination uh, toronto's not a fashion capital but the two best shows on fashion in the world are were coming out of toronto uh, so that was that was pretty exciting and and so what I tried to do with the, with my show, we didn't have the budget that fashion television had, so I had to find ways to be able to leave the country and co- and cover internationally without paying for anything. And the other thing too that I did was uh, focus on menswear uh, because uh, you know fashion television was all about women's wear. And I remember having discussions with the producer, and he thought that you know men's fashion was boring. It was three piece like three button blazers or two button blazers. but uh but i I, I kind of disagreed and, and and I was always trying to find like some, some good content that, you know, men could watch, uh, but everybody could watch. Right. Joe Mimran, originally of Club Monaco fame and more recently
0: best known for his Joe Fresh brand. Is he the Dave nickel of fashion and clothes retailing, i.e. <laughs> a real visionary in a, a primo marketing genius in your mind? Oh
1: yeah. He's brilliant. And his level of understanding and culture is like super high. Uh, he just purchased Kit and Ace. Uh, which is he's now, you know, part of his showroom. He purchased uh, Tilly's. Remember, back in the day, was Tilly Endurable. So he's injecting new life into that brand. Uh, they're launching a golf line as well. Yeah, he's. Yeah, you, you always have to keep an eye on on what Joe Mimran's doing because he's going to hit it out of the ballpark. Lots of respect for Joe. And how about the roots guys, Michael Budman, Don Green? Same question:
0: visionaries and superb marketers.
1: Of course, yeah. Uh, they they've contributed so much to the city of Toronto to Canada. You know, to, to, to brand uh, our country, you know, south of the border and around the world. Uh, great guys. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Glenn Baxter, please check out the
0: more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We got Rick Campanelli, Cheryl Hickey, Gord Mardino, Wendy Mesley, and Ted Wallish. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24 7, 365 wherever you get your podcasts. Glenn, I have to tell you, I own two suits, one for weddings, one for funerals. You, however, own 25 suits just for summer. You own another 25 suits just for winter. How big is your closet at home?
1: But I got to tell you, Andrew, it's like COVID changed everything. I do own about 50 suits and I have this thing called addition by subtraction. So if something comes in, something has to go out. So it's not going to exceed those numbers but COVID changed the game. I mean, it actually boosted sales for menswear. Like I work in an office now and nobody's wearing suits. Uh, the founder and CEO comes in in a t-shirt and sneakers, nobody's wearing suits. So people like me had to now spend money and, uh, reinvent their, their wardrobe, their closet and, you know, go more into uh, casual wear and, you know, of course like, you know, fitted and, and so on, but we're not wearing suits anymore. I, I I had to like uh, follow a YouTube uh, tutorial to learn how to tie a tie recently. Like it's, it's not happening anymore. So these suits in my closet are collecting dust. Well, everything's cyclical, as you know. But
0: something new for you is paying for your clothes because yeah, yeah. in 1993, you were dressed exclusively by Hugo Boss for 20 years under the yeah. red label Hugo. Now, I'm personally not that impressed, Glenn, because I have been dressed for over 20 years <laughs> exclusively by my wife, Becky, but you know, shopping for clothes to me is suffering.
1: Yes, and that <laughs> and 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 that's why I was so lucky. I didn't have to shop for twenty straight years. And, and um, I was, the I was awful taking care burden of. of having to wear Hugo Boss head to toe. <laughs> Glenn, I feel yeah. for you. The good thing about Hugo Boss is it's all encompassing, right? So it's jeans and tuxedos and everything in between. So there are you know labels that are more luxurious or more expensive. Uh, but the great thing with that brand is it had everything, like sweatpants and and. And and bow ties and shoes and belts and parkas and everything like oh I'm doing this event okay we'll send you an outfit it was I think one of the most envied clothing deals in Canadian broadcasting history I would get calls from reporters from other stations hey can I get your contact like it, it was pretty pretty sweet uh, and and I learned so much I mean that's how I because that started in the early 90s when Hugo Boss was launching their fashion forward uh, red label Hugo. And that's when they brought me in and said, okay, I think we're ready to, 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 to dress you and to start this relationship. And that's how I also kind of yeah, developed an appreciation for fashion. I remember going to New York where the uh, head designer for Hugo Boss uh, Wagner, this German dude who was chain smoking Mark Marlboro lights and, and pounding back espressos every five minutes, kind of like put this whole wardrobe together for me for that season. And it's like, Oh, okay. I'm, and then I'd go to like these fashion events that I'd be invited to. And, you know, like uh, in, in 1996, I, I won a, uh, man of style award, uh, by the Globe and Mail in I think in 2001, uh, Toronto star, uh, selected me as best dressed as one of the top, top 10 best dressed. So yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was great. And I didn't have to break a sweat because I'd go there in the spring. Here's your wardrobe for the season. I'd go in the fall. Here's your wardrobe for fall, winter, and I'd be taken care of. And after the 20 years, I was like lost. It's because it, once the, uh, you know, once the show, uh, was canceled and then I was on my own, uh, I didn't, I didn't even know like where to start. Like how do, how do people shop? They have to like, <laughs> Like where did like I have to try stuff on and this is on sale? Does this match like it was it was hard. It was brutal. The money you save and <laughs> the time you save yeah. that as you know, Glenn, that that definitely goes down. And it's most. important. I mean, it's television, right? It's a visual medium and, and you wear you wear that suit or you wear that outfit uh like an armor. Like when you're going to Milan Fashion Week and, and you're 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 dressed right, it it you know, you don't have to think about that and you're fitting right in and and you can concentrate on the work at hand. But uh it was certainly uh a, a, a great uh perk. And I still keep in touch with those guys at Hugo Boss.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Glenn, you love to travel. You take about a month each year to travel. Where's the most unexpected place that you've been recognized?
1: Oh, wow. Uh, there's, yeah, a couple of times. I remember I, remember w- I was in the Philippines uh, in the late 90s, I think 1998, 97, 98. And I'm in Boracay and I'm walking on the beach and there's like a like a two-story kind of hut with a, like a bar on the top second floor kind of thing. And, and all I hear is, Hi Glenn Baxter. <laughs> and I to this day I don't I don't know who that was. Probably somebody from Toronto, but I just kind of smiled and kept walking over it. I don't know, just random weird stuff
0: uh, like that. And the flip side of that, Glenn, of course, is great to be recognized somewhere weird, but who do you get mistaken for most often? Ooh, I don't know. Uh that's not
1: happened too often. <laughs> well,
0: that's pretty good. Or Boris Becker back in the day. <laughs> I don't know. I think Boris Becker. I think that's a good <laughs> one.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Big question here: Habs or Leafs? Oh, geez, I could go on for that's another podcast. So I was a big Habs fan growing up. My dad would, you know, take me to the Forum in, in Montreal, and and then I moved to Toronto to study journalism as we we talked about earlier. And I was, at one point I was living behind Maple Leaf Gardens um, mm-hmm. as I was working for the French CBC and, and going to Ryerson, and I couldn't understand the fact that there were scalpers out front selling tickets to the worst team in the NHL, and it, in Montreal it's the opposite, right? I remember. One year they didn't make the playoffs and they were banning Molson and they were, you know, uh, cancelling their season tickets. Fans there react in a different way. Here, the mentality is, you know, I'm a fan through thick and thin. I stick with them no matter what. uh, But how's that working out for you? It's like, you know, like there's there's I just think there's not so much motivation uh, at head office to to make some big changes because it's such a lucrative uh, team. Uh, The tickets are so expensive and everybody's watching the games and buying the merch. I've only been to two Leafs games in my whole life.
0: Well, I have to tell you, my wife, Vicky, Greenfield Park, South Shore, she uh, has been in Toronto much longer than she's ever in Montreal. Coincidentally, her first place was across the street from the gardens. (laughs) And she still refuses to cheer for the correct team living there. So (laughs) you guys are very loyal.
1: Yeah. But I, 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 kind of like, uh, starting to change uh, my way of thinking because, uh, the company I work for now, Freed is a MLSC sponsor. So our, our logo is on the board and on the big screen. And I did go to a game, uh, a few months ago and, uh, Daryl Sittler, uh, drove, like dropped by our, our booth and you know, it's like, uh, so go leafs. All
0: right. <laughs> We right. I'm going to have you talk to my wife. Let's fast forward, as you know, to current day, you are working with a huge developer, Freed Developments. What is your role and what are you working on? Uh,
1: So I am the director of brand experience for uh, Freed Hotels and Resorts, which is a new division of the company. Uh, So Freed is probably best known in Toronto for developing King West. I'm actually coming to you from from one of uh, their buildings that was designed by Philippe Stark, uh, the French uh, industrial uh, interior designer. Uh, but you know, he developed the Thompson Hotel, which is now the one hotel, and about about a dozen condos in this area. Uh, but a, a couple of years ago, he purchased land north of the city, and he became uh, on, certainly Ontario, maybe Canada's biggest uh, resort community owner, developer, and operator. He owns a uh, Deerhurst uh, Horseshoe Muskoka uh, Bay Resort and land that will be developed at Blue Mountain. And I guess part of my role is uh, to kind of uh, have those properties uh, reflect uh the the freed the freed brand aesthetic um another interesting thing is I'm not only an employee but I was the first ever purchaser of a freed condo so I am known as the first customer uh you know P- Peter who's the founder of the company said you know there was, there people who bought more condos and spent more money but you know you'll always be the first that is great that is
0: great now clearly you're not uh, an office guy in the sense that today you're not in an office and so far it sounds like your job is driving to resorts at that <laughs> time the environment
1: you're used to was very different. Do you enjoy being a corporate guy, Glenn? When COVID hit, uh, it was pretty tough because I was like freelancing and working on projects. And as you know, that kind of all, uh, all dried up and there were no events and we were all isolating. So when this opportunity uh, presented itself, I jumped at it, especially because I did have uh, a relationship and an understanding with with the brand. Um, I, I worked with uh, with Peter on Toronto Fashion Week when he tried to resurrect it in Yorkville after IMG uh walked away from the event so for a while Toronto did not have a fashion week uh Peter brought it to first capital in Yorkville he brought in Jean-Paul Gaultier for a couple of days and and it it ran for a few seasons so I worked so I've I've had a relationship with the company and and I guess I kind of do what I what I do but not for a broadcaster but for a, a developer so I kind of like fall back on my extensive list of contacts that I've developed over the years uh, we are also producing video content and, and working on, uh, various events and I'm, I'm familiar with events. So it's, it's all within my wheelhouse. Uh, although there is a learning curve, it was a new position. It's not like somebody trained me for two weeks and on Tuesdays I do this and this way. So yeah, but, uh, it's, it's been a year and a half and it's been a great run. And the way I look at it is old dog, new tricks. Hey, that's <laughs> great. I, no, I'm really, I'm really fortunate. Like I, I to, to, you know, cause, uh, I'm not a spring chicken, Andrew. You know, well, and to have this opportunity is, is you know, I'm very grateful for it. Well,
0: that's great. And obviously you got the right attitude for it. <laughs> now, another thing, Glenn, being bilingual has obviously been a huge career asset for you. I'm yes. assuming it was not your choice, so to speak, but decided for you by your parents. Now that you are the proverbial elder and can look back on what that meant for you, what's your advice today to parents about putting their children in French immersion or otherwise ensuring that they are bilingual?
1: Wow. Yeah, do it. You know, it's a gift. It's, it's been a blessing for me. Uh, I think every single opportunity and job I've ever gotten in in, in Toronto was because of my bilingualism. Certainly, uh, it offered me, uh, breaks early on and not only professionally, but in life. I mean, I get to read French novels. I get to enjoy French cinema. It's a whole other world, right? You're, you're, you're enhancing and you're, you're improving your, Day to day, your your lifestyle, your enjoyment, your appreciation of all good things in the world, and if you learn uh, a, a third, fourth, fifth language, even better, right? And you know, in in Canada, most people are speak English, and we have uh, people coming from all over the world who speak multiple languages. Uh, a lot of people are certainly like when I was in Montreal, uh, everybody that I knew was bilingual. Uh, I didn't realize that when you moved to Toronto, that was you know uh, unusual, but but yeah, I would encourage. Uh, anyone who has an opportunity to send their kids to uh, to school to learn more than one language to do so. It'll it'll only improve their lives. Excellent. Well, it certainly worked for you. Glad a new documentary about much music called
0: 299 Queen Street West from director Sean Menard is coming out this fall. Are you aware of it?
1: Have you seen any of it? And have you been involved with it in any way? I've heard of it. I've seen the trailer. I have not been involved uh, with it, but it's... Uh, it had its world premiere, as you know, uh, in Austin, Texas during uh, South by Southwest. I'm disappointed that it's not having its world premiere at TIFF this year, which would have been perfect. I mean, Much Music used to cover all things TIFF uh, and have been a great media supporter. Apparently, uh, this is what I've heard, uh, just that the, they, they didn't make a, uh, their, their decision made uh, quick enough. So I think the producers had an opportunity uh, South by Southwest and went for that, uh, which makes sense. You know, it's a music festival. Uh, it's, it's going to be screened for the first time in Canada on September 22nd. Uh, there are, apparently, uh, there will be a big party in the 299 parking lot, which is kind of cool. Cause that's like in the old days, the MNVA kind of days. I don't know if I haven't seen, uh, the film. I don't know if I'm in the background or not, but uh, it's, it's focusing obviously on the, the all-star VJ lineup, uh, the Erica M's and Steve Anthony's and Michael Williams and, uh Rick the tenth. I heard Rick uh, was uh flew on his own dime to Austin for, for the premiere. So, you know, uh I love that. I love that. I, and I don't know if I can watch it. Like and I've heard that from other people who were who were part of that world. It's like, you know, we lived it and to see someone else kind of interpret what went on is uh well no, I don't know. I don't know how I feel. That's very interesting. And I, I think that's
0: gonna generate some more buzz for it, frankly, because uh, it is everyone's anticipating what will actually yeah. be in
1: there. And so. it's, touring, it's touring Canada, right? So if you go online, you can check out dates uh, across uh, from Montreal to, you know, Edmonton and stuff. So I think, and, and I think some of the VJs will be appearing at all the screenings for a, a post-screening a Q&A on stage. So it should be interesting. It'll be very interesting. Now, Glenn, outside the confines of your day
0: job with Free Developments, are you working on any other projects you want to talk about?
1: No, I think uh, everything revolves around that job and, and uh, you know, just... Uh, continuing uh the traveling thing, which is something uh that that is still dear to me. I had a chance to go to Eritrea this year and, and right before the pandemic, I uh, spent uh, some time in Sudan, uh, which is, you know, in the news for, for you know all the wrong reasons right now. But um yeah, that that's probably the thing that I'm most passionate about is is traveling. I've been to over fifty countries around the world and 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 uh you know for for one year to, to one month. And uh, it, it's something that, uh, that's still uh, near and dear. Excellent. Are you on social media? Where can we best follow you? Uh, yes, you can follow me on Instagram and threads and Twitter, Glenn Baxter, T.O. See, I, I'm not doing the Montreal thing. I'm doing the Toronto thing. Excellent. Glenn Baxter, uh, T.O. <laughs> Fantastic.
0: Glenn, it's been great meeting you. Love hearing your stories, seeing what you're up to. And uh, I want to wish you continued success and have a great summer.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate
0: it. It's been my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Glenn Baxter, I am Andrew Applebaum, saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast.
1: I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.